Welcome to The Kinked Wire, the interventional radiology podcast from SIR Publications. You can learn more on our website, sirweb.org slash kinkedwire. This episode provides audio abstracts of papers published in the September 2022 issue of SIR's Journal of Vascular and Interventional Radiology. You can find the full papers on jvir.org. My name is Daniel Kim. Hello, my name is Jonathan Jelski, and I am a third-year medical student at Kansas City University. I will be reading the abstract titled, Uterine Artery Embolization for Pedunculated Subserosal Fibroids, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis by Koziars and colleagues. Purpose, to provide a comprehensive overview of the literature assessing the safety and efficacy of uterine artery embolization, or UAE, for patients with pedunculated subserosal fibroids. Materials and methods. Medline and Embase databases were searched without language or publication type restrictions for observational studies to estimate outcomes of safety measured by adverse events and efficacy assessed by devascularization, fibroid volume reduction, and uterine volume reduction. Case reports were included to qualitatively report adverse events. Meta-analysis was performed for single proportions and mean changes with random effects modeling. Results. Of 98 eligible articles, 11 studies were included in the final analysis. Of the adverse events detailed in these cases, 5 events were mild, 2 were moderate, including torsion of pedunculated fibroid requiring laparoscopic myomectomy and persistent bleeding after embolization requiring hysterectomy, and 1 was severe. Fibroid necrosis causing bowel obstruction requiring bowel resection and hysterectomy. There were no deaths reported in the literature. The pooled risk of adverse events was 1.7%. The pooled devascularization rate was 75.9% at 3.91 months of follow-up. The percent volume reduction of the dominant pedunculated fibroid was 38.6% at 4.3 months of follow-up. The percent uterine volume reduction was 36.7% at 3.5 months of follow-up. Conclusions UAE for pedunculated subserosal fibroids has a low risk of adverse events and effectively reduces fibroid and uterine size. Hello, my name is Konrad Kozlowski and I am a second-year medical student at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. I will be reading the abstract titled Microwave Ablation as Bridging to Liver Transplant for Patients with Hepatocellular Carcinoma, a Single Center Retrospective Analysis by Coulard and colleagues. Purpose, to evaluate the efficacy and safety of microwave ablation as first-line local regional therapy for bridging patients with hepatocellular carcinoma, or HCC, to liver transplant. Materials and methods. This retrospective study evaluated 88 patients who received percutaneous microwave ablation for 141 tumors as first-line local regional therapy for HCC and who were listed for liver transplantation at a single medical center between 2011 and 2019. The overall survival rate statuses after liver transplant, weightless retention, and disease progression were evaluated using the Kaplan-Meier techniques. Results. Among the 88 patients who were listed for transplant, which included 72 men and 16 women, the mean age of 60 years, and model for end-stage liver disease score of 11.2, 
the median waitlist time was 9.4 months. 71 or 80.7% of patients received transplant after a median waitlist time of 8.5 months. 17 or 19.3% of patients were removed from the waitlist. Of these, four or 4.5% were removed because of tumors outside of the Milan criteria considered an HCC-specific dropout. No significant difference in tumor size or alpha fetoprotein was observed in the transplanted versus non-transplanted patients at the time of ablation. Five or 5.1% of the 88 patients experienced adverse events after ablation. However, they all recovered. There were no cases of tract seeding. The local tumor progression rate was 7.2%. The overall survival status after liver transplant at five years was 76.7%, and the disease-specific survival after liver tumor progression was 89.6%, with a median follow-up of 61 months for all patients. Conclusions. Microwave ablation appears to be safe and effective for bridging patients with HCC to liver transplant without weightless removal from seeding, adverse events, or local tumor progression. Hello. My name is Anna Gonzalez, and I am a fourth-year medical student at the University of Illinois College of Medicine at Chicago. I will be reading the abstract titled, Phase Zero Study of Vandetanib Eluding Radiopaque Embolics as a Preoperative Embolization Treatment in Patients with Resectable Liver Malignancies by Beaton and colleagues. Purpose, to assess the safety and tolerability of a vandetanib eluding radiopaque embolic or BTG002814 for transarterial chemoembolization, or TASE, in patients with resectable liver malignancies. Materials and methods. The Verona clinical trial was a first in-human, phase zero, single-arm, window-of-opportunity study. Eligible patients were aged 18 years or older and had resectable Chalk-Puch-A hepatocellular carcinoma or metastatic colorectal cancer. Patients received 1 milliliter of BTG002814 transarterially for a total of 100 milligrams of vandetanib 7 to 21 days prior to surgery. The primary objectives were to establish the safety and tolerability of BTG002814 embolization and determine the concentrations of vandetanib and its metabolite N-desmethylvandetanib in the plasma and resected liver after treatment. Biomarker studies included circulating proangiogenic factors, perfusion computed tomography, and dynamic contrast-enhanced magnetic resonance imaging. Results, eight patients were enrolled, two with hepatocellular carcinoma and six with metastatic colorectal carcinoma. There was one grade three adverse event before surgery and 18 after surgery. Six adverse events were deemed to be related to BTG002814. Surgical resection was not delayed. Vandetanib was present in the plasma of all patients 12 days after treatment with a mean maximum concentration of 24.3 nanograms per milliliter and in resected liver tissues up to 32 days after treatment. The median percentage of tumor necrosis was 92.5% with a range of 5 to 100%. There were no significant changes in perfusion imaging parameters after TACE. Conclusions? BTG002814 has an acceptable safety profile in patients before surgery.
The presence of vandetanib in the tumor specimens up to 32 days after treatment suggests sustained anti-cancer activity, while the low vandetanib levels in the plasma suggest minimal release into the systemic circulation. Further evaluation of this taste combination is warranted in dose-finding and efficacy studies. Hello, my name is Leanne Liu and I am a second-year medical student at the University of California at Davis School of Medicine. I will be reading the abstract titled, Predictors of Major Hemorrhage After Spleen Core Biopsy in Cancer Patients by Kunin and colleagues. In this retrospective study, 232 spleen biopsies from 218 patients with cancer were assessed. Biopsies resulting in hemorrhage requiring hospitalization, transfusion, or other interventions were compared with those that did not. The maximization of the UDIN index helped determine the optimal systolic blood pressure and platelet count thresholds. There were 15 major hemorrhages, or 7%, among 211 core biopsies. A multivariate logistic regression model showed that higher systolic blood pressure, lower platelet count, and the lack of ultrasound guidance were independently associated with major hemorrhage, all with a p-value of less than 0.05. The optimal systolic blood pressure cutoff was 140 millimeters mercury, and the platelet count cutoff was 120,000 platelets per microliter. In conclusion, the high major hemorrhage rate of 7% among percutaneous core spleen biopsies in patients with cancer may be mitigated by controlling systolic blood pressure to less than 140 millimeters mercury and avoiding biopsy in patients with thrombocytopenia. Hello, my name is Ramel Noche and I'm a third-year medical student at Frank H. Netter, MD, School of Medicine at Quinnipiac University. I will be reading the abstract titled, The Use of an Inflatable Adhesive External Compression Device for Maintenance of Hemostasis Following Angiography in Children by Alamari and colleagues. Purpose, to assess the safety and efficacy of the post-hemostasis use of an inflatable adhesive external compression device called Safeguard following angiography in children performed under general anesthesia. Materials and methods. Medical records of 74 children with a mean age of 8.9 years and mean weight of 44 kilograms in whom an inflatable adhesive external compression device was used for maintaining hemostasis following angiography under general anesthesia or retrospectively reviewed. After establishing hemostasis with manual compression, the device was applied and inflated over the arteriotomy. The patients were assessed for access-related adverse events in the recovery unit and during post-procedural follow-up. Results. The inflatable adhesive external compression device was utilized to maintain hemostasis following 181 angiography procedures. The mean length of the procedure was 396 minutes. The common femoral artery was the most common access using four to five French vascular sheath or three to five French sheathless catheters. The mean time to deflation was 93 minutes. There were no adverse events other than minor bleeding from the arteriotomy after deflation in 1.1% of procedures and early deflation of the device because of pain in less than 1% of procedures. Follow-up ultrasonography in 60.2% of procedures at a mean follow-up of 2.2 years demonstrated patency 
of the access artery. Conclusions. The use of an inflatable adhesive external compression device following angiography in children to maintain hemostasis during the emergence phase of anesthesia and recovery period is safe and effective. The use of this simple device may reduce the need for post-procedural sedation and facilitate early discharge. Hello, my name is Jacob Knittel, and I'm a second-year medical student at Creighton University School of Medicine, Phoenix Regional Campus. I'll be reading the abstract titled, Vascular Pathology and Impact of Stentycentricity for Stent Restenosis in Femoral Popliteal and Novascular Therapy by Mochidome and colleagues. Purpose to explore the clinical features associated with stent eccentricity and reveal the impact of stent eccentricity on the risk of one-year restenosis after femoral popliteal stent implantation for symptomatic atherosclerotic peripheral artery disease, or PAD. Materials and methods. The clinical database of a multicenter prospective study was used. It registered 2,018 limbs of 1,766 patients in whom intravascular ultrasound-supported femoral popliteal endovascular therapy for symptomatic atherosclerotic PAD was planned from November 2015 to June 2017. The study included 1,233 limbs of 1,088 patients implanted with a bare nitinol stent, drug-eluting stent, or stent graft, and administered greater than or equal to 2 antitherbotic drugs. The stentycentricity was evaluated using intravascular ultrasound, calculated as the maximum diameter divided by minimum diameter minus one at the cross-sectional segment with the lowest lumen area after stent implantation. Results. Chronic total occlusion and bilateral arterial calcification were positively associated with stentycentricity, whereas renal failure while receiving dialysis, drug-eluting stent use, and stent graft use were negatively associated with stent eccentricity, all with a p-value of less than 0.05. Stent eccentricity was associated with an increased risk of one-year restenosis. However, after adjustment for lesion severity and implanted stent types, the association was no longer significant. Conclusions Stent eccentricity was not significantly associated with the risk of one-year restenosis after femoral popliteal vascular therapy. Hello, my name is Talia Fradkin, and I am a second-year medical student at Florida Atlantic University College of Medicine. I will be reading the abstract titled, Percutaneous Sclerotherapy for Bud Chiari Syndrome Secondary to Giant Hepatic Venous Malformations, or hemangiomas, by Yazdi and colleagues. Purpose. This prospective study evaluated the safety and effectiveness of percutaneous sclerotherapy in the treatment of secondary Bud Chiari Syndrome due to hepatic venous malformations. Materials and methods. Four patients with five hepatic venous malformations underwent seven sessions of percutaneous sclerotherapy with a mixture of bleomycin and lipiodol. All patients had chronic Bud Chiari syndrome, determined based on imaging findings, with the main symptom being abdominal discomfort and distension. On physical examination, two patients had ascites and the other two had an epigastric mass. The indication for treatment was intractable abdominal symptoms due to hepatic and or inferior vena cava outflow compression. Results. All procedures were technically successful with no major complications. 
three patients underwent a second session because of incomplete inferior vena cava decompression. The patient's symptoms completely resolved at 6 and 12 months of follow-up. There was a significant reduction in lesion volume and an increase in inferior vena cava luminal area at 12 months of follow-up. We thank all the medical students who helped with this episode. My name is Patrick Bryan. I am a second year medical student at Rocky Vista University College of Osteopathic Medicine, Southern Utah. And I was your audio editor for this episode. The research from this episode appears in the September 2022 issue of JVIR. And you can visit jvir.org for the full papers, other audio content, and much more.